The following message was recorded live at Three Strands Church. We hope it will bless you, encourage you, and challenge you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray for you or answer any questions you have. Message us at threestrands.church slash contact. We're in the second week of this series called They Say. And uh, they say a lot of stuff. I listed off a bunch of things from history that they say or they have said last week. But uh, they say a lot of stuff, but the majority is not always right. In fact, the majority is often wrong, and sometimes the minority is also wrong. Uh, You can't always trust what they say. And they is really just anybody that's not the person you're talking to in that moment, right? You're like, uh, they say, you can fill in the blank with anything you want there. And the other person is kind of like obligated to give you credit for something that somebody else said, and they don't even know who it was. But just because they're a teacher or a scientist or a government official, and they say it, doesn't necessarily make it true or right, does it? They say a lot of stuff. So I gave you this phrase last week. It'll be on the screen here with a couple blanks on it. And I want you to just like raise a hand. Who can help me out? Who can fill in the blanks? Anybody remember it from last week? Ah, Lily Smith, go for it. Say it again without the accent. I can't. That's the only way I can talk is with a southern accent. Yeah, trust what God says, not what they say. That's good. I actually have a prize for you, but I forgot to bring it up. So you have to get it for me after church, all right? It's a prize, okay? It's a surprise and a prize. So, all right. Trust what God says, not what they say. That's kind of the goal of this series, right? That we would hear God's voice above all the other voices. And I said last week, the voice you listen to will determine the future you experience. And so what we want to do as Christians, as followers of Jesus, if that's you, you want to learn how to weed out, how to cancel out all the other voices in your life and just hear Jesus' voice above all the rest. And so to do that, we're looking through this piece of Scripture in Matthew chapter 5. We call it a piece of the Sermon on the Mount. It's just Jesus teaching on a mountainside. Thousands, probably thousands of people around him. Not just average, common, everyday people, but also full of religious leaders and teachers of the law. Pharisees. The elites. The they-says. The ones who are telling everybody else how to live and teaching everybody else from God's Word what they should do to be right with God, they're also there, and Jesus knows it. And so he issues this warning at the beginning of this section of Scripture we're looking at. I read it to you last week. I'm going to read it to you again. It's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Here's the warning Jesus gives. He says, But I warn you, unless your righteousness, righteousness is just that big, uh, fancy Bible word for right living or the right things to do, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, all these religious people over here in the crowd with us, unless your righteousness is better than their righteousness or the righteousness they're teaching you, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that's like a bold statement. I know we don't get it today in our culture, but for those people, that would have been like a super bold statement. Because those Pharisees, those religious teachers, those experts in the law, the ones telling everybody else how to live, they all looked at them as living the best lives. They thought of them as like, if anybody's getting it all right, it's those people. You ever have anybody in your life like that? You look at them and you just think to yourself like, man, if anybody's nailing it, it's that couple. If anybody's living the right way, it's that person in my class. If anybody seems to have it all figured out and is doing all the right stuff with their life, it's that coworker. That's what these Pharisees would have been like. 
probably times 10 to these people. They looked at them and they just thought like, no, if anybody's living the right kind of life, the kind of life that God wants you to live, the kind of life that gets you into heaven, it's this group of people right here. And Jesus is like, if you wanted to get into heaven, you've got to live a better life than them. And you're like, well, how am I going to do that? And then he sets off the list all these things that that group that they say, but that he says something different about. He's going to say, you've kind of heard people say in the past, this is how you're supposed to live, but I'm telling you, that's not good enough. Unless you live better than that, you won't even get into heaven. He makes it sound impossible, and that's kind of his point. So last week we started with the first one where he said, you've heard people say in the past you're not supposed to commit murder, and everybody's kind of on board with that. But then he says, but I say to you, you've got to go beyond that. You can't just resist murder. You, you, even if you hate somebody, you're guilty of murder. Even if you call somebody else a name, you're guilty of murder. Even if you uh, have something against somebody and you're fighting for all your rights and you're in the right, you're guilty of murder. Even if somebody else has something against you, you're guilty of murder. Like, it's out of my control. Like, how do, I, how do I live like that? How do I not hate people? How do I not call anybody else a name? How do I not lose my temper at anybody else? And that was kind of his point. You know, you're all guilty of murder. All of us are murderers. But he doesn't stop there. He's going to go on to this next one. Here's the next one. I'll give it to you today. We're going to be in verses, I don't know, start in 27, Matthew chapter 5. Verse 27 says, you have heard, remember, you have heard is that kind of code word for us that they say. Right? You've heard they say this, right? You've heard the commandment, you must not commit adultery. All right? So here's this next one that they've heard. Commandment number seven from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. That's commandment number six. We covered that last week. And this is an interesting one because now in that audience where Jesus was speaking, they would have all been on board with this one too. All right, you, I get it. Commandment number seven, we're not supposed to commit adultery. We're on board. Now our group's a little different today. And I said last week we probably all agreed that murder is a bad thing. But in our culture, the rest of these that we're going to look at, some people think they're no big deal. This is one of those. There's people probably in our room that would think like, yeah, this is a bad thing. So other people in this room would be like, go get yours. I don't see the harm. Yeah, somebody's feelings might be hurt or something, but like, is this such a big deal? Doesn't God want me to be happy? Shouldn't I just get with whoever makes me the happiest in the moment? I'm not saying that. Jesus not saying that. God's word's not saying that. But I think in our culture, there's a lot of people that feel like that. If you're being honest about it, we're not, we don't have unanimous agreement on this one like we did last week. I think you'd be hard-pressed to go around the country and find a whole lot of people that think murder is a good thing. I think you'd find a lot of people that don't think adultery is such a big deal. But nonetheless, they would all be in agreement on it. It's not a good thing to do. It's not the right thing to do. So let's get on the same page about it just for a second. Let's just kind of talk about what it is, what it looks like, and how it happens and all that. What is adultery? Because that could be a word that, you know, if you're not a church person or if you haven't, didn't grow up in church or haven't read your Bible, or you might not know what that word is. So let's just kind of simplify it, break it down a little bit. What is adultery? Adultery is just when somebody who's married 
has any kind of like sexual relationship or encounter with somebody who's not their spouse. That's it. It's the easiest way to kind of define it for you. Somebody who's married, instead of being with their spouse intimately, physically, they go and they get with somebody else. That's adultery. And maybe you're more on board now. Maybe you think like, yeah, they shouldn't do that. They shouldn't cheat. They shouldn't be unfaithful. That's what it is. Sexual activity between a married person and someone other than their spouse, right? All right, so in God's word, just so we know what this audience is thinking at the time, what's the punishment for adultery? I'm just going to tell you, okay? We don't have time to look at the whole Bible today. It's death, all right? It's not the punishment for adultery in America, but the punishment in Israel at that time was death. You got a question, Sid? Oh, you were going to answer. She had her hand up. Awesome. I like that. Audience participation. Excellent. Excellent. Death. Death by stoning. In fact, we read that in our family devotions yesterday, right? John chapter 8, we were looking at the story where they drag the woman in front of Jesus um, who has committed adultery. They're trying to trick Jesus into saying something they can use against them, right? And they're like, hey, the law says this woman's committed adultery. We're supposed to stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? And they know if Jesus says, yeah, go ahead and stone her to death, just like the law says, that they've got him because now they can be like, oh, see, you don't really love everybody. But if he says, ah, just give her grace, don't, don't stone her, be kind to her, let her go, then they can be like, see, you don't even obey God's law. And it's like no matter what answer he gives, they kind of got him, right? Jesus kind of, out, he outsmarts them though because, you know, he's God. And so he, he kind of thinks for a second, and he stands up and he says, yeah, okay, go ahead and stone her, but whoever hasn't sinned at all, let that person be the one that throws the first stone. And they all have to recognize, like, now we're trapped. Because if we throw the first stone, it's like we're saying we think we're perfect. But if we admit we've sinned, then none of us can stone her. What do we do? And they all just kind of walk away. Jesus tells the woman, nobody here is going to condemn you. Go and sin no more. But that was kind of our story we looked at in our family devotion time yesterday. But yeah, the same idea. Adultery in the law of Moses and the Israeli law, the law that God gave them, the punishment for adultery is death. Death to both parties. I'm not going to take the time to go there. You can look that up on your own if you want. But uh, uh, maybe I do have that. Do I have Deuteronomy 22 in there? No, I don't think I put that in there. You can look it up on your own. Deuteronomy 22, 22 to 27. You'll find the repeat of that in God's law um, where he lists out how you're going to uh, put to death those who commit adultery. It's that important, that serious to God. And so they would have all been thinking that when Jesus said this. Yeah, don't commit adultery because if you do, death is coming, right? Now what causes adultery? Just like last week with murder, the Bible is going to be pretty clear about this, that adultery, just like murder, doesn't come because society didn't give you all the benefits you needed. It doesn't come because your spouse wasn't kind enough to you, didn't make you enough dinners, or didn't give you enough compliments. Adultery comes from the same place that murder comes from. It comes from our heart. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 18. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile, corrupt, make you bad on the inside. So where does it come from? 
comes from our lust. It kind of comes out of this combination of our lust and our discontentment. We start to believe a bunch of lies, like it could be better if I was with them. They don't treat me like that. You know, you know, almost nobody walks down their aisle on their wedding day, like thinking to themselves, I can't wait to cheat on this person. So it doesn't come from some kind of like malicious upfront intent. It almost always comes from this kind of slow fade over time where somebody just seems to treat you nicer and you get discontent with the life you got. And you allow that lust on the inside to just kind of go wild. And you start to daydream about what it could be like, about how much better it could be. You start to think God has not blessed you the way he's supposed to. That God has somehow shortchanged you or given all the good things in life to other people. And you look at these other couples and you see them on Facebook and all their pictures look wonderful. And you're like, why isn't our marriage like that? Why isn't my relationship so fulfilling? And you get discontent. And your lust takes over and you just start to see all these fantasies of how much better it could be. And you believe the lie that God misplaced your blessing. I've said this with our church before, copied this from somebody else I heard it from years ago, but I just want you to know today, God never sends your blessing to the wrong address. It's not like that. You think God misplaced the mail? You think God took all the good stuff for you? It's like, well, I just don't know where that's at now. No, God is giving you exactly what you need, exactly what it takes to refine you and make you the person he wants you to be. It's us that gets it skewed, that gets it messed up. And, and many of us, many of us today, just like them back then, would have used this as the bar of righteousness and would say things like, hey, I mean, I know I'm not perfect, but I never killed anybody, right? I know I'm not the best person in the whole world, but I can look as long as I don't touch, right? I didn't commit adultery. I'm a good husband because I never slept with anybody else. You must not commit adultery. Yeah, we're on board, Jesus. But then in the next verse, he's going to take it further. In verse 28, he says, But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You remember our bar from last week, right? Remember, the, this is the bar of righteousness, Right? Carson's like, put some more weight on that to make me righteous. <laughs> this is the bar of righteousness, right? This is what Jesus is doing in this story. He's taking all the things that they think are righteous, and he's saying, I'm raising the bar on those things. In fact, I'm raising the bar so high, you can't even see it up there. Now I'll try to get over it. And, and you've heard them say you're not supposed to commit adultery, but I'm saying to you, even if you look at someone else and lust inside about them. You've already committed adultery with her. With them. See what he did? He raised the bar so high that everybody who's being honest has to admit they're an adulterer or an adulteress. Just like last week, everybody would have to be honest and admit that they're a murderer. This would sting. If you really cared about what God thought of you, this would sting. You think, I'm guilty. What is he saying? Everybody's guilty? It might lead you to think, maybe I shouldn't even get married. 
Because the bar is so high, I don't want to be an adulterer or an adulteress. And, and, and it looks like if I get married, I know I'm going to mess up. I know I'm going to think some lustful thoughts about somebody at some point. Maybe I should just stay single. And that's a lie that almost half of our country believes right now. Better off not to get married. Married, that's stupid. How to stay single. I can just live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. Why get married? What's the benefit to getting married today? Isn't that how most of our culture thinks now? Why get married? What use is there in getting married? If we get married, we'll just cheat on each other and it'll be over. Might lead you to think you're better off to stay single, right? Maybe it'll make you think you should go live the rest of your life in some convent as a nun or some monastery as a monk and take some kind of vow of celibacy. That'll be the answer, won't it? Jesus is taking all of us who think we have a different idea about how to live, a different way to do this, and saying, you're still going to be unrighteous. You're still going to lust. You're still going to think things you shouldn't about other people. Going off by yourself somewhere, staying single, that isn't going to solve the problem. Do you see what Jesus did? Not only did he raise the bar of adultery to not just being when a married person has some kind of sexual relationship with somebody that's not their spouse, not only did he just raise it from that to the way you think on the inside, he extended it out to even the people who aren't married. Did you see that? But I say to you, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust in their heart has already committed adultery. Uh-oh. He just took the bar and extended it to everybody who's basically like puberty on. Single, married, divorced, doesn't matter. You're still an adulterer. You're still an adulteress. Or a charismatic. Could be a charismatic too. If you listen online, you don't know what that means. That's okay. Do you see what he did? The bar is so high that we've all lost already. Just like last week, I don't know if there's anybody in the room that's not a murderer. Is there anybody in the room that would say they're not an adulterer, an adulteress? How could we? I find it interesting, just kind of a side note, that Jesus starts this conversation of trying to break apart their self-righteousness by talking about anger and lust. Because I don't know if there's any like more two universal sins or struggles that humanity has that highlights our depravity. Our, our ability to just lose our temper on almost anybody, our uncontrollable, unbridled lust and passion. And that's where Jesus starts. Then he's going to go on and give us, just like he did last week, two examples of what this looks like and what you should do if you're struggling with this. I love these examples, even better than last week's, right? It's just like the bar is just so high, right? So here's the first one in verse 29. He says, so if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. How's that sound, church? We ready? Everybody ready to go put this into practice today? Gouge and I, everybody comes back next week like a patch. Everybody's wearing a patch next week. Is that what he's talking about? Sounds like it. Sounds like it. The next one's just like it. In verse 30, he says, and if your hand, even your strong hand, causes you, I love it, I love it. That he says, like, even your good eye, even your strong hand, as if you'd be like, well, I'd love to lose a hand as long as it's my bad. Like, who wants to lose a hand? I remember, like, when I was selling cars, you got a lot of downtime when you're selling cars. 
we would stand around and talk about just like foolish stuff a lot, you know. And one of the things that we would, I would bring up, we would bring up a lot of times, be like, hey man, if you had to lose a body part, what would you give up? Like if you had to, lose, if you had to give up one finger, what would you, like if somebody, hey, a million bucks, would you chop off a finger for a million bucks? Absolutely, take my pinky all day for a million bucks. You know, people would be like, and I just love it that they say this, like none of this is good, but if your hand, even your strong hand causes you to sin, go ahead and just lop it off. And throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown in your, into hell. You, you get what he's saying? Would you rather get into heaven with one eye or into hell with both? That's what he's saying, right? Would you rather get into heaven with, both your hand, or with one hand or get into hell with both your hands? That's what he's really asking us. This seems like a, a difficult thing because like, I'm, I'm looking at that thing. Like, is there like an option C? Jesus, like, where's C? Can I have, like, none of the above? I don't want to lose a hand or go to hell. You know what I mean? Like, where's that answer, you know? And remember, like, the context of what's going on here. It's Jesus trying to say in these examples. Here, here's what he's trying to say. You ready? You love him? You love God? You want to get into heaven? You want to be one of God's children? Your attitude should be, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to kill sin in my life. I'm willing to sacrifice anything it costs me to make sure I don't commit adultery. That's really what he's saying. How do I know he doesn't really want them to cut off his hand or gouge out their eyes? I know that because I can't find one of his followers in the Bible that Jesus went to later, he's like, hey, what's going on? And you say, you love me. Why don't you gouge out your eye yet? But they're all guilty. That's the point of the story. We're all guilty. What he's really saying is, are you willing to do what it takes to kill sin in your life? Or are you trying to rewrite God's word and make your own religion that fits what you like? That's what we do. Remember the context of what he's talking about here, what's going on. He's trying to destroy their system of self-righteousness. Hey, we got this list of stuff. As long as we do that, we're good with God. I haven't murdered. I haven't committed adultery. That's not enough. The bar's higher than that. He's ripping apart the idea for them. This is what humans do, though. This is what we do. When we don't like God's plan, we don't like what God has to say, we create our own system. We take God and His Word and we drag it down to our level and we find some rules that we're comfortable following and we conclude that that's what righteousness looks like and then we convince ourselves that because we do those things, God's pleased with us and we're getting into heaven. I hear that all the time. People that are like blatantly choosing stuff that God says is sin but list off all the good things they do. As if that means anything. You don't get to pick and choose which part of God you like and which part is offensive to you. You don't get to pick and choose which part is comfortable for you to follow and which part costs you a hand or an eye. I do whatever it takes to live the way God's telling me to live. And in the end, I still fail. And I have to face the conclusion that I can't ever be good enough. That I'm a murderous, adulterous jerk. I got in trouble last week for saying the word idiot too much during the church service. So it was just in the Bible when I was reading it, I'm just saying that, but I'm going to try to like refrain from using 
my family's offensive language today. So, But that's what we do. And Jesus is trying to shatter that, say to us, you don't get your own God. You don't get to tell God how to act. You don't get to boil down religion to what you like and then claim that you're in charge of your own life. It doesn't work like that. If that's what you're thinking, you're the Pharisee. You're the religious teacher, and you aren't going to heaven. You get God's plan and only God's plan. Jesus is setting them up. He's setting us up for this super important principle. Here's the principle. If you think that there's an area that you're pretty good in, if you think there's a sin that you don't commit, if you think there's some rules God has laid out that you do a good job of following, I got news for you. You're guilty of those. As soon as you start to brag about how good you are at one thing or how much better you are than somebody else at most of the Christian experience, I got news for you, Jesus is saying, you're guilty of the same things they are. They're no worse than you. And you're no better than them. That's where he's leaving us. You're just fooling yourself. And you're really just as guilty as everybody else you think you're better than. Self-righteousness will only get you to hell. If you're counting on yourself to be good enough, you will never make it to heaven because none of us are good enough. None of our righteousness is worth anything. It's all like dirty, disgusting, filthy rags. That's what God tells us. There's no one righteous, not even one. So we're left to look at this and hopefully kind of conclude like last week, I am guilty. I am not just a murderer, but I am also unfaithful to my spouse. You say, I'm single. You're already unfaithful to your spouse, and you don't even know who they are yet. That's how messed up we are. And you look at that, and hopefully it kind of drives you to just look at your own life and think, I need help. That's what Jesus is trying to do in this crowd Bring them to a place where they realize they're not okay. They're not good enough. They need help. That's what he's trying to do for us. I challenged you last week, can you admit that you're a murderer? Can you admit that you're an adulterer or adulteress? Can you go beyond that this week and say to Jesus, not only am I those things, I just need your help. Will you help me? The only one who actually was righteous? Will you help me? Or you create your own religion, one where you get to look around, make up your own standard of rights and wrongs, do life your own way, and ultimately the way that works out is you get discontent. You start to look around what everybody else has, and you start to think, they got it better than me. I need what they have, I want what they get. That's the path to a real adultery, physical adultery. How many of us are on that path, the path of discontentment that allows our lust to run wild, that ends in crushing our family? There's not one person I've ever heard of who's been 90 years old on their deathbed, laying there and saying to themselves, if only I had slept with more people behind my wife's back, my life would have been so much better. Nobody thinks that way. 
It's all a lie. It's all a trick in your head that it'll be better. It's not going to be better. It's going to be chaos. It's going to be worse. That discontentment breeds in our heart. We start to think God mailed our blessing to the wrong address. I want to share one more verse with you today. It's in Psalm 119, verse 18. I shared this verse with people at the advance a few years back. I don't know if you'll remember it or if you were sleeping during that session. But Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes to see wonderful things from your law. You know what that verse teaches me? There are some things about this life that I can't see unless God opens my eyes to them. I don't know if that's frustrating, discouraging, or encouraging. But I'm just saying to you today, there's some things about your life you probably can't see unless you ask God to open your eyes to it. Maybe your life isn't as awful as you think it is. Maybe your discontentment isn't all about what everybody else is robbing you from. Maybe it's just something you can't see. I'm going to share with you the same story I shared with them a few years back at the advance. And so if you've heard this before, I apologize, but just kind of bear with me. I stole the story from another preacher. His name's Jenison Franklin. But he tells this story of a pamphlet that was published in 1869 about a guy named Ali Hafed. It's a true story. Ali Hafed lived in South Africa. He was just a poor farmer, had a wife and two sons. And they lived on this farm. He had several acres of land. And he worked the farm every day just to put food on their family's table and to get by. Uh, It was hard work. It wasn't an easy life. Anybody that's ever farmed knows it's not an easy life, right? Preach. Tuesday's in the back saying preach. And so he worked in these fields, plowed fields, planted crops, provided for his family. And one day a traveler came along and he got to talking to Ali. And, and Ali offered to let the man stay with them for the evening. So the man spends the night with him. And as they were talking in the evening, the man said to Ali Hafed, he said, I, I hate it that you have to work so hard to make ends meet. When I know that there are people in India getting rich right now because they just found diamonds. He's like, I just came from India, and there's people all over India, and they found this riverbed that cuts down through uh, two mountains, and there's diamonds everywhere. And people are literally just walking along the riverbank, reaching down their hand and picking up diamonds and getting rich. He said, I hate it that you have to struggle so hard for riches, for wealth, for sustenance when there's people in India getting rich. Well, the man left the next day, and this really resonated and rang true with Ali Hafed, and he started to get a little discontent with his life. It's right. It's not fair. I hate it that I have to work so hard, and there's people over in India getting rich. This went on for several days, and he would dream about it, think about it, and get more and more frustrated, and a few weeks passed, and he couldn't take it anymore, and he came to his wife, and he said, I've, I've got to take the leap and go out and try to get some fortune for our family. So They sold their farm and all of his equipment and his livestock. He took his wife and his two sons and left them in South Africa with some family members and said, I'll be back. I'm going to find money for us. I'm going to go find some diamonds. And when I come back, we will be rich. We will literally sit on thrones as kings and queens. And he travels to India with the money he had got from selling his farm and all their equipment. He travels to India and he sets out looking for diamonds, and he can't find any. 
And time goes on. He finds no diamonds, and he's blowing through the money he had with them. And uh, he takes the last little bit of money he's got left, and he had heard a tip that some people in Spain knew where there was more diamonds. And so he travels from India to Spain in search of some more information, some more clues of where he could find diamonds. And when he gets to Spain, there are no clues. Nobody can tell him where to find diamonds. And he finally runs out of all of his money. He starts to get depressed and discouraged, feeling like a failure and hopeless. And he ends up walking up to this bridge that goes across this river that was um, raging downstream. And he jumps over the bridge and kills himself. Before his suicide, he wrote out a short note and sent it home to his wife. And the note just simply said, I've looked everywhere. There are no diamonds anywhere. That's a sad story. It's not the end of the story, but it's a sad story. Meanwhile, while all that's going on, the man that Ali Hafed sold his farm to is plowing the same fields that Ali plowed with the same equipment that Ali used, using the same oxen to pull the plow that Ali Hafed used, And all along the way, he's working and he's sweating and he's providing for his family. And as he plows the field, it's hard work and he keeps running into these rocks. And so he has to stop, bend over, pick up the rocks, throw them out of the field into these big rock piles he had made. And he was angry at these rocks, frustrated. And there's one huge, like, boulder-sized rock. And he picks it up. He says, I'm taking that one home. Takes that back to his house, puts it up on his mantle above the fireplace. It was this black, kind of shiny-looking rock. And he just keeps working. A couple weeks after he had started plowing those fields, the town's local priest came out to welcome him and his family to the community. He starts talking to this guy, and he sees the rock on the mantle, and he says, where did you get that rock? And the guy says, I got it out of the field. They're everywhere out there. And the priest says, that's a diamond in the rough. Sure enough, the man takes that rock into town and is able to sell it for $25,000 in the 1800s. That'd be like millions today. He was sitting on top of what is to this day the largest diamond mines in the world. They're called the Golconda Golconda Diamond Mines. It's where the Queen of England's jewels, crown jewels come from. It's the largest diamond mines on planet Earth. And this guy was plowing those fields and didn't even know that all those diamonds were right underneath him. Ali Hafed was plowing the exact same field, doing the exact same work, and didn't even realize that he was walking around working every day on acres full of diamonds. He had been convinced The blessing was somewhere else. The blessing was in India. He killed himself because in all of his searching, he couldn't find what had been buried just below his feet all along. He had been living on riches and didn't even know it. And I wonder, church, I wonder, how many of you, how many of you are discontent looking for the next job so you can't enjoy the blessing of the job you got. And I wonder how many of you are discontent looking for the next activity, 
can't even enjoy the activity you're at now. And I wonder how many of you are talking about how great some other church is and can't even enjoy the blessings of the church you have now. I wonder how many of us are discontent with our spouse, thinking it would be better if we had somebody else who treated us different, if we had somebody else who was kinder to us, if we had somebody else that gave us more of what we want, and we can't even see the diamonds God's put in our life right now. I wonder how much blessing we're missing out on because we've allowed discontentment to turn into lust. And we've allowed that lust to go on inside of us because, hey, we haven't touched anybody. And we've missed all those blessings that God's put in our life. I didn't plan this this way. I told Stephanie as we do plan out our teaching schedule ahead of time. But I'm usually not thinking about dates for my own life when we're doing that. So I'm usually thinking about things like holidays and when Kenny's available and stuff like that. <clears throat> but today's Stephanie and I's anniversary. 18 years. 18 years. Oh, whoa, whoa. I don't know about all that, but okay. But um, three years of me just being like a total jerk. Two years of us thinking we weren't going to make it. And then what's left? 13 years of awesomeness, right? There is no charge for awesomeness or attractiveness. That's Kung Fu Panda, if anybody doesn't watch Kung Fu Panda. But um, yeah, first three years of our marriage, guys, I was a jerk. A jerk. I was this person Jesus is talking about. I didn't touch anybody. I'd be like, I didn't do anything. But I had no control over my lusts. I wouldn't have chopped off a hand or poked out an eye. I was a jerk. I didn't care about Stephanie. I didn't care about pastoring. I didn't care about honoring God. I was a jerk. I lived a lot of my life that way. First half of my life, a lot of jerk in it. Second half of my life so far, still some jerk, but not as much jerk, I guess. But a lot of jerk in that first half of my life. Always concerned with what was next or what I could get from all the people around me. Manipulating people, using people. Just trying to make myself happy. Sexually unfaithful. Impure. Let my thoughts do whatever they wanted to do. Just a jerk. And I remember telling a pastor friend of mine about some of my struggles. This was like before we even came to Kentucky, I think. And, and the struggles did not end when we came to Kentucky, that's for sure. But I remember telling a pastor friend about some of my struggles with these subjects. And I remember him saying to me, hey man, when you get down there, don't share this stuff in front of your church. Because if you do, all the women in your church are going to lose respect for you. And uh, I remember about 10 years ago now, we were at a uh, group meeting up in Lexington. And I was talking to some guys. We were just about to start having kids. Sydney was just about here. And I remember talking to some guy friends of mine and being like, man, what am I going to tell them about my past? What am I going to tell my kids about my life? Some of you know my story. You know I've got like time on my record. Um, you know that like I've been unfaithful, that you know that Stephanie and I were like a hair away from divorce. Um, 
What am I going to tell my kids? Because I want my kids to love Jesus. And I remember my one buddy up there saying, like, I don't know if you should tell them, man. Are you going to tell your kids about all this stuff? I, I got to tell you guys, like, the world and even Christianity is trying to convince us all to stay super quiet about all of our weaknesses. But I have found the exact opposite to be true. I have found that when I honestly share about how weak I am, that that's when Jesus is strong. When I honestly communicate to our church how messed up I've been in my life sexually, how messed up I've been with my temper, how messed up I've been with my pride, my selfishness, that in those moments, women don't disrespect me in our church. Women sit there and they think to themselves, me too. We sat our kids down and we told them all about it. Hey, daddy's been in prison. Daddy's got a record. Daddy's been a jerk. Daddy treated mommy like a jerk, like I was a jerk. There's no way I want my kids to find out about that from somebody else. I want my kids to know from me that I'm not the hero in the story. You get it? Do you get what Jesus is trying to teach us? That we're not the heroes that he's the hero. And anytime I try to set myself up as the hero, I take away from his glory. And I am resisting the actual plan he's offering me. And I'm becoming my own God. We're not the heroes. John Newton, who famously wrote the hymn Amazing Grace, was in the Royal Navy in England and then later became a, a slave trader. And he started reading his Bible and he realized that like slavery was wrong. He got out of the slave trading business. He became an abolitionist and was partly responsible for ending slavery in England. He would later go on to become a preacher and to write several hymns. The most famous, of course, is Amazing Grace. But when he was nearing the end of his life, he had gotten some version of dementia or Alzheimer's, and he couldn't hardly remember anything. He had forgotten so many things that he couldn't hardly carry on a conversation with anybody anymore. And somebody wrote down some of the last words he ever said, and he said this, It seems as though when I age, there are only two things I can remember now. They're the only two things you need to remember if you're going to have a successful life today. You ready? One is that I am a great sinner. And the second is that Jesus Christ is a greater Savior. Are you with me? You guys see what Jesus is teaching us in this text. He isn't teaching you, you need to go off and start cutting off hands. He isn't trying to teach you, start poking out eyes. He is saying, do whatever it takes to kill sin in your life. But really the goal of what he's teaching is like, you're never going to be good enough. Stop trying to be the hero of the story. Start pointing people to me instead. I'm the only hero. Do you get it? Stay weak. Stay dependent. Stay connected to Jesus. Keep pointing people to him. Do you understand what he's trying to teach? Are, are we on the same page two weeks into this series? I know they say a lot of things. Even good intended things. Keep that a secret. Don't let anybody know what you're really like. Ah, it's not a big deal if you do that, is it? I know they say a lot of things, but I say, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. 
It isn't about you being better. It's about you recognizing you can't ever be good enough. You got to stay bad, stay weak, stay broken. Then Jesus can be strong for us. It's not going to be on the screen, but I just want to leave you with my favorite verse in the Bible. Wasn't my favorite verse in the Bible because my life has been so broken. God has made this my new favorite verse in the Bible. You can look it up on your own sometimes. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul writes, Paul writes, But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others, too, will be able to see that they, too, can believe and receive eternal life. That's my life. Like, I'm just so messed up. I'm just another messed up guy like you. I got all the same struggles you have. But Jesus is looking to use us as an example of how great his grace is. That's amazing grace. Can I pray for you? Dear Heavenly Father, will you give the people in our crowd the ears to hear your truth today? And the courage to go out of here and do whatever it takes to kill sin in their life. But also, God, to go out of here and never forget how messed up we are, how broken we are, and how desperately we need your grace each day. God, help us to just be begging for your love and grace each day. Reminded of how much you care for us. Don't let us ever get confident in our own self, but keep us weak. In Jesus' name I pray. What an amazing challenge from God's Word for all of us. We hope you will start putting everything you've learned in this session into practice. And be sure to subscribe to the 3SC Podcast so you'll never miss any new content. Thanks for listening.